0: true crime news that uh have not gotten around to like talking about with you i guess not the least of which is the alibi filing with brian koberger which i you sent it to me so i assume you read that
1: i think that that could be literally the least of it
0: what, of the true crime news,
1: yeah, you said not the least of it, but
0: well, well, I think that's a big. Like, I I watch everybody online talk about that case, but I don't really talk about that case with anybody very much. I know what they're doing. Do you know what they're doing?
1: Well, they had to file a response to the state's request. They did. And did you pick up any hints on the response? Yeah. I go ahead and. I would be willing to say, I was going to say I put money on it, but it doesn't seem right to say that. So I would say that um, it, it sounds like they don't even plan on putting on a defense.
0: Correct. That's what that is. And like everybody's like, all the legal heads are rolling over it. But the truth is they're just giving the judge a signal that they don't plan on using a defense. They're going to they're gonna do their entire defense case on cross and rebuttal,
1: that's what that's, it looks like,
0: and I think that's a smart move. It might be the only move they have, so I would be surprised if they do that. Uh, but that's what it looks like, you know. And uh, that well, is-
1: it said that th- they planned on uh, elaborating further do the cross examination of the state's witnesses.
0: Right, and I don't. I don't know how that's going to go. Usually, like. You don't see it in cases quite this high profile for that to happen, but not putting on a defense is actually a right of defendants.
1: And oh yeah. Well, and the premise of that is that that the state hasn't provided a case that needs to be defended.
0: Yeah. And I I don't know how the, you know, I don't know how their strategy is going right now. I don't know who is behind that ultimately, The defendant themselves have to make that call. Uh, It just depends on whether he's following the legal advice or if he's haphazardly steering his own boat.
1: Uh, Well, once he stood silent, I have to believe that he was in charge of that.
0: Yeah, that was a little early on. The thing about standing silent is everybody acted like that was also a big deal. That's literally done every day in this country in every jurisdiction and it's not, it's not actually called standing silent it's called standing mute
1: either way uh the court just they simply enter a guilty and not guilty plea on your behalf Correct. um but it's a the like it's a gesture that like a good defense attorney typically probably wouldn't make
0: it's okay, so to stand mute kind of like it's not it's usually they're not going to make the plea because they don't feel that's informed a, enough yet that's about
1: acknowledging something's happening.
0: Yeah, that's that's sort of how people view it. It's really not that. It's it's really they don't have enough information to be informed about what's happening to plead guilty or not guilty or nolo contendere or anything else. So they they just stand mute. And it's not even like the fact that it like there was all this hubbub about it was kind of confusing to me because um, the court just enters the plea and everybody moves on.
1: Right. Well, and you know, it's brought up again in the filing. Uh, so the state, uh, I would say requested, but you know, they, they filed for the defense to provide any alibi that they were going to. And they cited the Idaho statue that, requires it or allows for them to do that and in response um, it's simply put that he that through the cross-examination of the state's witnesses they'll be able to show that he was somewhere else besides the king road residence right yeah and that's it that's the whole alibi which which is not much of one
0: well okay if I'm wrong and they are going to put on a defense, which is possible, I will say this. They used a very basic constitutional right to frame this response, and I bought it. But that, that, that if I'm wrong, then I bought it and, and I missed the boat, which may be what they're doing. That is a strategic thing that can happen. But the bottom line is they're simply saying – they are preserving his right to remain silent.
1: Right. You're right. Like I said, they said that, you know, they would, through discovery and through uh, cross-examination, would reveal whatever, right? Um, but they that, that doesn't contradict him, you know, standing silent. It's interesting to me, though, that, I don't know, I just see this whole thing as sort of like somebody in denial and I don't mean his attorney um, I'm sure she's got her hands full on all of it really um, I would say that I, I think that uh, the no defense defense um, it while I understand the significance of it it's really not a good strategy uh, jurors don't understand it I think
0: well, you still get a you still get an opening argument and a closing argument. It does change the order of some things. It um, does. Way, it, it, it could be confusing. Ultimately, you do it so that you get the last word. I don't know how familiar you are with like this particular strategy. This is not the type of case you do that in n- normally.
1: Well, and sometimes depending on how many rebuttals you end up with, <laughs> and the judge allowing it. It doesn't actually work out that way, right? I know that when the defense doesn't put on a defense, that that automatically grants them the final closing before the jury. And so the thought is that in their minds, that's the last thing you're going to go out on, right? Whatever the defense has said. Because the sides alternate, right? The state presents their case. And then if the defense is going to put on a defense, they present their defense. And then there's any number of rebuttals that are allowed by the judge. And then you go to closing. And if the defense doesn't put on a case, then the closing uh, falls to the state first. And then the defense would close after the state and so, so you know I, I don't think i feel like that when uh i feel ju- i feel like juries miss it and i would love for a, a big case to happen where there's not a defense put on and somebody's found not guilty uh i haven't i mean i haven't really looked recently but at one point in time i was trying to find an example of a case um, where that actually worked out well.
0: You mean not putting on a defense worked well?
1: Yeah, like where it actually worked, where like the stance, because the only reason a defense attorney would not put on a defense is because if, well, according to, you know, what they're required to do as a defense attorney during a trial would be. To basically, you know, it's the stance that the state has not proven a case against the defendant. So, therefore, there's no reason for us to defend it, right? Yeah. Because there is nothing to defend against. And I don't think jurors, like just your run-of-the-mill average jury, I don't think they get that.
0: I don't know that most people understand how fast most trials happen.
1: Oh, right. A lot of them are very quick.
0: Yeah, like so many trials take place in a day. Oh, yeah. And this is not that kind of case overall just because of the number of steps they have to go through and the number of witnesses they have to call. It would be interesting. What I would be curious about is say this trial goes, and I haven't seen the estimates on it, so I'm guessing and I'm making stuff up, but we've seen some long trials recently. Say this trial goes four weeks, <laughs> and then the prosecution is responsible for the bulk of that because you're going to have like a half day opening arguments, and then you're going to uh, for the prosecution, and then half day for the defense, and then you're going to have all these, you know, prosecution witnesses, and then cross examination and rebuttal witnesses, and depending on the local rules, I think the rebuttal has to happen like in. In this area, in this place, I believe the way the rebuttal has to go down, it all has to be what kind of at one time. And I don't think the defense can call actual rebuttal witnesses, but I'd have to look at it to see how that would go. Well,
1: if they don't put on a defense, they certainly can't call that, rebuttal witnesses.
0: I think, yeah, I think they have to impeach and I think they have to use the prosecution's witnesses against each other, basically. It's like yeah, that's, that's how that's they have to put together sh- their
1: case. Cross-examination, right?
0: Yeah. So there's that is happening. I'm interested to see how that goes. That might be a reason that I covered a piece of that trial, is if the defense, you know, once the prosecution closes out their case, if the defense just rests, meaning they're not going to put on a case.
1: Well, and typically that, so the defense rests and they typically make a motion for like a dismissal of the charges, Right. Right. And the whole premise is there is no case here, which is right. like defense one hundred and one. Except that is a huge gamble that's uh, going to happen here. It, it it's rarely successful. There's a reason it's rarely successful. It's not a. And I'm talking about big cases. I don't know about cases that take an hour, right? I don't know right. about trials that take an hour. But I'm saying. Like in the big cases where I've seen the strategy used to not put on a defense. And it's funny because, and the reason I say that it's not effective is because literally everybody that thinks that sees that happen, they think the defense attorney didn't do their job.
0: Right. But their job was to, like their strategy and their quote job was all along the way, they were pulling apart everything the prosecution put up
1: through cross-examination I understand that but what I'm saying is like when the jury sees it they're like man they're not even gonna try and defend this they don't it doesn't click with them that there's nothing to defend against I think it's a poor trial strategy because it uh the perception that it's its purpose and not presenting a defense and its perception by like a normal everyday person that would be sitting on a jury are two very different things.
0: I literally could talk about this all day and I would probably bore you to tears, but I well,
1: if it does end up being that, um, I, so I'll say this, we may never come back to it. It doesn't really matter to me, but I will say that I can just about guarantee you if they don't put on a defense that he will be, Uh, found guilty just like every other person that has gone through this then you know there's always a question in everybody's mind well the defense attorney didn't put on a defense is that why he was convicted but you know i'm just saying you know if i'm going to hedge a bet that's what i would say and also depending on what happens during the state side which they have all this information way ahead of time right And that's how they plan. But whatever the state puts forward, sometimes something's presented that has to be addressed by the defense, right? Uh, We saw it in the Murdoch trial. Yes. And so it really depends on what they're going to offer as evidence and how far it goes. And you also have to weigh out the severity of the crime. And the outrage and the outcry that it caused, right? I mean, it was a big deal.
0: Yeah. I, if this comes where if this comes to a point where they – there's going to have to be a bombshell in that case for me to come back to it um, on here.
1: I would One say of, that a death penalty case without a defense would definitely be worth just mentioning at least.
0: If they do that, I might. I I think this could also be a red herring by the defense. Like, this could be part of their strategy. Like, defending his right to remain silent is a challengeable thing. And just because uh, the statute in Idaho says you must notice the alibi, his ability to remain silent is preserved by the Constitution, which overrides anything Idaho says anyways. So... At this point in time, I think there's not enough here to be super interested in it, but the two things that would make me come back to it are, other than a bombshell like prosecution or defense, um, if if he were to not put on a defense, I would come back and talk a little bit about that case, or – If he were to testify, I'm definitely coming back and talking about that case.
1: I can just about guarantee, not that I have anything to guarantee with, I I feel very confident we will never hear a word out of him.
0: Hmm. Maybe.
1: I mean, he didn't even plead, so.
0: I, I watched a couple of cases down in the South that were... They're not big cases. We've talked about one or two of them where silence, 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 silence. And then all of a sudden the defendant testified and it worked to a degree either to hang a jury or to offset something.
1: No, well, I mean, I guess I can always be wrong. It's just from everything I've ever seen and watched and absorbed, I have a feeling this trial will go on and uh, we'll never hear a word out of Brian Koberger. I, I, I think that the defense more than likely will not put on a defense just based on that, on the alibi statement. And I feel like overall the whole thing is just, it's not that, it, you know, if he did it, I want him to be found not guilty. I feel like uh, the whole thing is in poor form, like really poor form. The defense legal strategy is is just, it's weird and it's bad.
0: I don't you know, I'm not I, I don't know enough to question it. I just know that like I looked at the document, um, and I'd seen it, but then you shared it with me. I was like, oh, maybe she wants to talk about that. I, when I look at it, the first thing I think is they're either setting it up for some kind of challenge or they're literally saying, We're not gonna be putting on a defense. And either one of those is interesting to me overall, like if there's like a if there's a more uh intricate like Legal thing going on there, but it could just be that's how they chose to respond. This is an odd case where you only ha- you only have a handful of capital defenders in this area that can represent someone in this type of crime. When you have that happen, I think having him as a client, just from the perspective of like what we know about the crimes, is complex. And I think that when you go in there and you sit down and talk to someone like him, you give him some options, I think that's messy. Um, and, you know, it, it's the opposite of ineffective assistance of counsel, by the way. It's like, r- this is like probably really effective strategy in some regards. I, I will be interested to see how it goes. That will be one that like, Personally, I like kind of stare at the screen if they, you know, do those highlights and and let you see the court footage and things like that. I can't remember if there's going to be any cameras
1: allowed on this one. I don't Um, know if they've decided yet or not.
0: But that would be one, you know, like personally, I'm going to watch it. There's a lot of those going on right now. Like there are multiple um, cases that at some point we will sort of touch on them in the true crime news section where there have been acquittals of people. So we will have some more trial stuff that comes up as the summer rolls along. But today. I wanted to like do one of those mixed episodes. I have a couple more True Crime news things I wanted to talk to you about, but then I wanted to move to like one case that's not a case. It's this crazy thing that happened. Did you hear about the skull guy? Have you heard about this whole thing up yeah. in Pennsylvania? Okay, so the the original headline was something like FBI raids home. Do you remember that whole uh, mm-hmm. FBI raids Bullet County home or something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and I wasn't a hundred percent sure the home that they raid, the FBI raids the home of a guy named James Nodd, who had been purchasing remains online using the alias William Burke. And so he had 40 human skulls and spinal cords that were being used as decorations in his home in Mount Washington, Kentucky. Then it ends up sprawling out into this whole thing and if if you guys want to read something fascinating it doesn't to me it does not seem to be uh violent crimes going on it seems to be sort of uh trafficking of human remains and organs does that seem right to you
1: yeah that's that's the impression i got
0: so the first thing i found on this came out of WDRB uh, July 12th or so. And the article, I guess it's written by staff. I had gone through to try and find a name on it, but nobody put their byline on this. So uh, it was a top story on WDRB. I don't know why they wouldn't want the credit, but it's pretty short. Uh, It says a Bullock County man was arrested Tuesday after FBI agents found dozens of skulls and other human remains in his Mount Washington home. The FBI obtained an arrest warrant for James Knott after an investigation started last year. Court documents show Knott, 39, purchased human remains online using the alias William Burke. Law enforcement viewed Knott's public Facebook page, which included posts about human remains for sale as recently as June of 2023. A Pennsylvania man, Jeremy Pauly, who, by the way, has his own website. I think it's jeremypauly.com was selling human remains, including organs and skin, from his home. Polly purchased the remains, which included hearts, brains, lungs, and two fetal specimens through Facebook Messenger from Candace Chapman, who is a mortician in Arkansas. So Pauly's in Pennsylvania. The mortician is in Arkansas. And we started this in Louisville, Kentucky. Polly sold and transported with a network of people that included James Knott. The FBI executed a search warrant Tuesday at his home in the 300 block of Love Avenue. Not was the only person in the apartment, but when an FBI agent asked if anyone else was there, he responded, "Only my dead friends." During the search, FBI agents found about 40 human skulls, spinal cords, femurs, and hip bones. The skulls were decorated and around furniture in the apartment. One of the skulls had a headscarf around it, while another was on Not's bed. FBI agents also found an AK-47 with loaded magazines, dummy grenades, two plates of body armor, and a loaded .38 Special Revolver. Neighbors told the DRB news that Knott was considered a loner and kept to himself. Based on the amount of guns the FBI says Knott possessed, they considered themselves lucky nothing worse happened. Knott was previously sentenced to 30 months in prison and three years of supervised release for felony violations, including possession of an unregistered destructive device and possession of a firearm by an an unlawful user of marijuana. Knott made his first appearance Wednesday in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Kentucky. He remains in federal custody and is being housed in Oldham County. If convicted, Knott could face a maximum of 10 years in prison. What do you think of this guy?
1: the remark about only his dead friends he knew exactly why they were there honestly when I look at the guy's mugshot I'm surprised the most surprising thing is that he's younger than I am
0: yeah yeah he's uh he's younger than I am too by by quite a few years and I look a
1: lot younger (laughs) it doesn't seem like he should be younger than me it's weird so that that kind of blew my mind for a second but and then my other thought was, you know, these people live their whole lives. And then uh, I don't know how they don't mention like the mortician being in trouble.
0: Um, oh, she is. Do you want to know more about this case?
1: Oh, yeah. You can tell me. I, I just didn't see it.
0: So I went hunting on this one because I figured it was, to be quite honest, it's sort of a nothing burger in a way. A what? A nothing burger, like there's not oh, much nothing to burger. it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's the
1: fascinating f- though. The,
0: the FBI using to you know choosing the movie line of "We're lucky nothing worse happened" is terrible because there was that guy didn't talk to people. He didn't want anything to do with people, and to the point that like he went online and bought dead friends. Right.
1: Um, I think that they met when they went in to get him, though.
0: Yeah, I understand that, but that guy had his stuff put away. He wasn't. He wasn't interested in whatever they, they were talking about there. He, he didn't want anything to do with the FBI, but he wasn't going to go crazy when they arrived, I don't think. The Local 21 News covered this. A guy named uh, Tyler Jesky picked it up. The thing is, what I just read you is from July, and all the information I have read about this case comes from July. That's when they sort of made it make headlines. But the original origins of this case go back much further. This, the Tyler article, Tyler uh, Jeske's article, is from June 15th, 2023. And it's out of he- uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it's got the, the mugshot of Jeremy Polly, the guy that I was talking about. And he reminds me of the serial killer in North Carolina named John Lawson, who changed his name to Pazuzu Algorod. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. He, he's he got that kind of like face tattoo stuff going. And he has like um, a number of – he's like he's got – gauges in his ears. Anyway, just sort of the overall look. And his... So the right side of the guy's face is tattooed, but his eye is done. And he had metal spikes in his head. It's very interesting. His eye
1: is what?
0: His eye is tattooed, black. Oh.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: I was shocked by that. Here's what this article says. A plea deal has been reached in the case surrounding stolen human remains that prosecutors said were bought and sold by Cumberland County man Jeremy Pauley. CBS 21 obtained the court documents, and the plea agreement was filed on June 14, 2023. According to the agreement, Pauley has been charged in multiple federal indictments but pleading guilty to two counts. One is conspiracy to commit interstate transportation of stolen property. The second one is interstate transportation of stolen property. The agreement states that Pauly could face up to 15 years in prison, a $500,000 fine, and three years of supervised release. Pauly must also admit his, uh, his guilt in open court. He has been con- connected to at least two federal indictments. His first arrest happened in August of 2022. This was after East Pennsboro Township Police received a complaint about human body parts being sold at a home in Enola. According to court records, Pauly was purchasing the parts by Facebook from a woman in Arkansas named Candace Scott, and police said they found a skull, three brains, four hands, and a number of other organs. The Federal Bureau of Investigation said those remains were taken from a mortuary that was connected to the University of Arkansas, and on here they have Candace Scott's mugshot as well as Jeremy Pauly's old mugshot. According to the U.S. attorney from the Middle District of Pennsylvania, Polly is one of six people charged in connection with trafficking stolen human remains. Authorities said those body parts were stolen from the anatomical gifts program at Harvard Medical School. That indictment stated that Polly received human skin from people in Boston uh, that he allegedly was tanning and turning into leather. The former morgue manager was among those charged. So... All right. So then, Jeremy Pauly comes, and you know he's got a a plea hearing. That was
1: well. I'm a little bit confused because there's actually news that just came out at 9:49 a.m. about his preliminary hearing being rescheduled for the seventh time. I don't know that it's on the same charges, though.
0: It's being it's been pushed back again. So so Uh, so Candace pled. Why would they
1: be having a preliminary hearing after he's pled guilty?
0: He has multiple federal okay. indictments. I see. The, okay, the sure. idea is in federal court, he's going to show up and he's going to plead out to the deal at the preliminary hearing. What's happened here, in my opinion, is that I believe there is another indictment coming down for these people. That's one of the reasons I brought them up. I saw where they were um, looking at taking her to trial, Candace Chapman. Candace Scott, sorry, uh, Candace Chapman Scott, is going to trial. This has all been going on for a year, and th- the re- the reason I bring all of this up is, you would think something like this is hidden away, right? Like it's something.
1: Well, by what what do you mean?
0: Like they they're acting like we uncovered this thing.
1: Oh, I yeah, I guess.
0: Okay. Jeremy Pauly has a website where he states he runs the Memento Mori Museum out of Pennsylvania. And he like literally is displaying human remains on this website. He talks, unfortunately, he talks about federal law, state law, and import regulations. He talks about plastination, which is, the chemical process of conser- conserving anatomical uh, specimens. So basically you replace all the body fluids with a synthetic polymer to make v- human remains handleable. This is not like hidden. This is literally on his own website at jeremyleepoly.com.
1: And he's talking about laws. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. not breaking them. I guess he didn't No, no, no. He no, no, no. no. He
0: He puts the federal law, the state law, and the import law – well, import regulations, I guess, on a page. Mm -hmm. Like he's got like Alabama through Mississippi where you can just click on it and you can see what those states say about it. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was fascinating because like you can't – this guy can't win. But one of the creepy things about it is I can't tell if these pictures are real. Or like real human remains, or if he made them up. Did you click on the site?
1: Well, I was trying to, but it took me somewhere else.
0: I was just shocked that he's sort of just hiding in plain sight. And he's selling this stuff
1: on Facebook. And people are buying it, uh, oh my. Yeah. And he's uh huh.
0: He literally has the Poly Institute of Preservation. As his like job title, he says on here seem that to he have
1: anything under federal law. <laughs> if I'm
0: you sorry. click on him, are you saying it doesn't go down any further? That seems right.
1: No, no. Um, so he has state law and federal law, but when I clicked on federal law, there was nothing there. Yeah,
0: one of the things he talked about doing was tanning human tattoos to preserve the artwork for family members.
1: Well, that actually, oh my god. Yeah, so glad you shared this with me. I, I, um, <laughs> Good book research
0: history. Goodbye.
1: And, you know, I wouldn't get into anybody's uh, business like that as far as, like, if you had a loved one pass away and, you know, they said it was okay and you wanted to do it for whatever reason. Um, but we're, we're talking about, like, the brokerage happening here, right?
0: We are. We're definitely talking about that part, yeah.
1: And so, to me, that's like super different. And i I have no idea how this came about. Uh, you said he was selling them on Facebook, and it seems like so. It seems like there was a uh, morgue manager at Harvard, the Harvard Medical School. Was that right?
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, they were in charge of managing Harvard Medical School's anatomical gift program.
1: Right, and so that would be like when people die and they leave their body parts to be studied or whatever, I guess. Correct. And so they, you know, when they, I guess, had extras. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was like a $4,000 sum here. Like, that's the only amount of money I've seen kind of thrown out. And I believe um, the, uh, I don't know what her name was. Hold on. The Candace Scott uh, person was paid $4,000 for... A half a human head, a whole human head minus a skull cap, three human brains with skull caps, a human heart, a human liver, a human lung, human kidneys, a human female pelvis, a piece of human torso, including a nipple, and four human hands. Yes. For the price of four thousand dollars.
0: Yes, that's that's what's been bandied about here, like in terms of what is and isn't a crime, it's so weird. Um, Harvard responded to all this, by the way. Do you want to hear the response? Sure. Okay. So uh, if you go on CBS, they cover the story briefly. Um, Again, it's uh, WBZ up there covered it, but they all just said, which is, that's CBS Boston, for people who don't know. Um, They just credit it to staff. They don't credit to any particular byline. On June 14th, 2023, they covered Harvard issuing a response. Harvard Medical School in Cambridge is responding to federal prosecutors' allegations that its morgue manager, a gentleman named Cedric Lodge, was selling stolen body parts online. In the message titled, An Abhorrent Betrayal, deans George Daly and Edward Hundert write that the alleged actions are morally reprehensible. We are appalled to learn that something so disturbing could happen on our campus. A community dedicated to healing and serving others, the dean said. The reported incidents are a betrayal of Harvard Medical School and, most importantly, each of the individuals who altruistically chose to will their bodies to HMS through the anatomical gift program to advance medical education and research. Prosecutors say that Cedric Lodge stole heads, brains, skin, bones, and other human remains without the knowledge or permission of HMS. Removed those remains from the Morgan, Massachusetts, and transported them to his residence in New Hampshire. Harvard said it worked with federal authorities to figure out which anatomical donors may have been affected. They have set up a web page for donor families in light of the news. Uh, and then they put the full statement in there, which is, I'm not going to read the full statement because it feels moral outragey to me. Um, but it's, it does give options to family members where they can go on and find out, you know, are they affected? And they give it there's information for the, um, the U.S. Uh, attorney's Office and the, the Victim and Witness Unit. I,
1: I have seen, just sort of briefly, I don't look into this kind of stuff, um, I have seen where um, there's not as much dignity in, like, donating your body to science as one might think, right? Correct, yeah. And it... <laughs> like I said, I haven't looked into it that much, but my thought is like, you're not doing what you think you're doing if you do that, right? Because it, it just doesn't seem like it means as much to the people that actually end up having to deal with your body, right? Yeah. Um, it's a it's a nice, like prominent thought behind it, but then you've got people who have dead bodies. They don't know what to do with. Yeah. That's what I've seen happen.
0: Well, and, and like you said, I, w- which number did you – you mentioned $4,000 or something like that? Yeah. So I think one of the numbers I saw here was 11000 and another one was $8,000. So we're not talking millions of dollars here that are, that are going on. Like totaling all up what I've seen is something like 50 grand. And look, I'm not defending these people, but I will say this. I think it's been delayed because they're having trouble with the elements of the crime making sense. Because I'm not entirely certain that they broke any laws.
1: Well, and he's pled guilty to something. That right. well,
0: there's a wait. So no, he is not allocuted yet. So there mm-hmm. has been a plea deal. That I will note that the only people that released the information about the plea deal is the U.S. Attorney's office.
1: Uh, and, what were those charges?
0: Those were charges them? of interstate conspiracy to engage in interstate. Commerce with stolen goods was one of them. And then transportation, interstate transportation of stolen goods. Those are the two charges. I'm not entirely, like, I'm not entirely certain that this is going to go down the way they think it was. Now, this was reported by a tipster back a long time ago, like over a year ago. And the cops went in and did this big search warrant and it got very sensational very quickly because it involved human remains. But you said something interesting and I want to know what you like. Do you think they've done some major crazy crime ring thing here with all these resources that they're chasing?
1: Um, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't really look into that very much, but for whatever reason, and this kind of illustrates that not with Jeremy, but with um, the other guy.
0: Cedric?
2: Or no, James Na, James
1: Na, yeah. Okay, so you know he he bought a lot of kind of random body parts, and he had them as decorations, right, uh, in his house when he was arrested. Uh, and so there's a market for it. Uh, I don't know that there's like a huge market for it, and I, I don't really know a whole lot about that.
0: Well, just generally speaking. I think that this keeps getting delayed because – so you're doing an open plea, but there's a recommendation by the prosecution. They probably want something ridiculous for this. Now, I'm not defending what any of these people did. I'm just not entirely certain that what they did constitutes some major crime or all of these resources towards it. If they've clearly only been able to go after them and get them to plea out to some interstate commerce issue.
1: Right. Um, I definitely think uh, the the person that served as the broker, uh, they're probably going to have some issues. But like I said, I don't know enough about those laws in particular. It seems like a very uh, niche market, right? Yeah. <laughs> as far as uh, who's interested in that kind of thing, and you've got to kind of find just the right people. But if you believe everything you read on the internet, which I would not necessarily advise anyone to do but if you believe stuff on the internet like there there can be these big rings of human tissue and organ trafficking that happens right and it's worth big money on the black market or whatever um i don't know how real any of that stuff is right
0: yeah no i just found the level of mainstream media coverage about this case fascinating from the perspective that it wasn't, it just didn't feel like, it didn't feel real that like that this is what we're like focusing on to, you know, be making this sensational.
1: Right. And I think it's, uh, the level of depravity. Um, I, I have
0: no judgment of these people at all. Like I don't have anything that makes me go, these people are terrible or anything like that. I, I, um, I don't even think much about it.
1: Well, I don't either, but I would say that it's a, it's it's a pretty neutral thing to say that it's not a great idea to have actual human remains uh, decorating your home.
0: Yeah, but these, okay.
1: I don't, I, so I'm not necessarily comparing that to, like, other things. I'm just no. saying, like, it's not really great taste to keep somebody's body in your house as a decoration, especially something you I,
0: you've I 100% agree with you. I was just going to say... It's weird to me how mainstream media treats those things. It becomes a whole weird thing. But that's not the only, those are not the only dumb things that humans are doing in our true crime news episodes. I have two left. And I know like we're kind of like running late in time. I'm going to start with the shortest one. This is uh, made headlines a bunch of different places. I think the best way to go with it is NBC News has it. And I think you heard about this. So, so you ever go into a restaurant and you forget something or leave something behind when you leave?
1: I haven't in a long time. But, yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with it happening.
0: Like, So for most people, that's a, like a giant pain in the butt if you leave your backpack or your purse or your phone these days behind. Like it changes your life for a few minutes while you try and to figure out what was going on. Well, there's a guy in Franklin, Tennessee. His name is Camilo Hurtado Campos. He left his phone behind in a restaurant. You can read this on NBC News. I think Dennis Romero had it. New York Post had an interesting article that's a dubious source at best. So, this is uh, like one of those situations where the employees go through the phone. You know, they're probably looking for the owner, also kind of like swiping through, you know, being people. The Franklin Police Department end up arresting Camilo Hurtado Campos because the phone gets turned over from the restaurant. Instead of going back to Mr. Campos, it goes to the police. Yeah, so he
1: probably should have had a better eye on that phone if he wanted his secret to remain. Huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, or locked it, or you know, some of the nine thousand things you can do. I think
1: that that is um, one of the like. So the case is terrible, right? But the fact that, like, this unlocked phone got left behind, it shows you, like, how casual this dude is about, like, this terrible stuff he's doing.
0: Yeah, like, I I cannot even imagine. Like, in my head, why do you keep this? Like, why do you do this? Why do you keep this, like, sort of recording of it all? Um, what they found is a little bit about... Camilo Campos in Franklin, Tennessee number one he is a soccer coach by all the descriptions that I found of him I don't know exactly what that means if it's like uh, like, for like a league or like a local organization or a school or what I, and I tried to do some digging into this uh, and I'm sure at some point more of this is going to come out but On the phone, what the restaurant workers found that made them want to go and uh, take the phone to the police was sexual assaults of 10 victims. Detectives going through the phones, the videos and photos on the phone, said they saw 10 victims and they were able to identify two of them with the help of local schools. But there were hundreds of videos and photos on the device and it appeared that the victims were all between the ages of 9 and 17. The children in the videos were in an unconscious state, and they may not have even realized that they had been victims. What they're saying is depicted here is children being drugged and then fondled or assaulted, for lack of a better word. Now, the way this gets written up, is it gets written up as child rape and the sexual exploitation of a minor. This is a very small area out here where they live, although Franklin, I will say, has about 80, 90,000 people in it. They were saying that he would use his job as a popular local soccer coach to lure these boys to his home. He would frequent nearby playgrounds in uh, both neighborhoods where he had lived, He would approach kids and he would recruit them as, quote, players on his team. After gaining their trust, he would invite them to his house and he would drug them. And then, according to the allegations, he would sexually assault them and rape them. This is all because he left his phone behind. And
1: he had evidence of that stuff on there.
0: Yeah, this is uh, bizarre to me
1: it's also kind of like divine intervention.
0: It is. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Like I um I was like scrolling through uh he he had a court appearance um this week and I have a feeling that they're going to be tacking on some more charges from I cannot believe that he was doing this. And that like all of these things coming together is bizarre um they did they they started to find these kids by the way like i said two of them i think it's more than that now i think Um, they're coming
1: forward once it sort of got
0: out yeah there were five or six kids that came forward beyond the ones they had started to identify but this was all at a local pizza shop in tennessee and you're right it is some element of divine intervention
1: because he he went unchecked forever and ever. And then he left his phone behind by accident. And because it happened to be civilians that got it, right? (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, they don't, you don't have to have a warrant or anything if you're just a person looking to return somebody's phone, right? Yep. And so having found, you know, the information, the people did the right thing, which was, you know, they went to the police about it. Um, I'm sure it must have been horrifying uh, to the extent that you're going to turn some random, which, I mean, I, I don't know if they figured out who it was, if he was a regular or what. But, you know, they knew who this guy was and or the police found him. And uh, I would have to see something really terrible on someone's phone. Not that I would be looking, but uh, in order to turn him in. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, so, well, so the, uh, the post and someone else interviewed, uh, an employee there and he described it, uh, he, this is Marco's pizza, by the way, it's in Franklin, Tennessee, June 22nd, uh, someone literally just walked up to him and said, Hey, this phone was on the table. The worker opened it and flipped through to see if they like recognized anybody in the, in the first couple of pictures, uh, immediately came across images that showed an adult male that were engaged in sexual activity, with what appeared to be juveniles called the police Police took the phone, and then Campos, the owner of the phone, shows up at Marcos the next day and asks a different employee if anyone had turned in the phone. And he clearly wanted to get this phone back. Campos gives the employee a phone number where he could be reached and left, and that clerk snapped a photo of his license plate. So, like, he's been identified at multiple steps there. And Oh,
1: that was so smart.
0: Yeah, so this is June 23rd. He gets arrested the same day investigators, they use the photo from the license plate to match Campos to the car and then to verify that that's who's in the images. Uh, apparently, it was a su- surprise to him when he gets arrested. So during an interview with the police, he not only admits that the cell phone is his, but he acknowledges that he knew those uh, images were on the phone. And th- they don't go any further as to tell us like if there were more Admissions, so to speak, during these interviews, um, and he doesn't—he did not have an attorney listed at that time. But uh, you know, he was held, and now he's starting to appear in court. Uh, they did find one of the boys is, is now twelve, so some of the images were older, um, and they are still asking that anyone in Tennessee, particularly in the Nashville area and the Franklin area, uh, if you know anything about Campos or things that he was doing, to come forward and talk to the investigators there locally. And I mean, this, this is fascinating to me for a number of reasons, not in a good way. Um, I'm glad that he's been caught. I hate that he did this. Um, in case, because we, we have several Tennessee folks that listen in here, uh, in case you happen to know anything about this or whatever, uh, the number directly to the investigators is 615-794-2513. That's 615 794 one, three, just tell me you have information, um, about Camilo Hurtado Campos. Um,
1: you know, whenever, um, something like this happens, that last account you gave about how he acknowledged the phone was his and, um, he talked with investigators and it wasn't really clear if anything else came out. So my brain splits in half, right? Yeah. Because, um, you know, I, I don't want anybody that's uh, hurting children in any capacity to get away with it at all, right? Uh, no. So, you know, I'm glad he he didn't have the knowledge to, you know, not say anything. But, you know, I, it immediately kicks in, like, oh, that's a mistake. Don't talk to the police. Don't acknowledge the phone is yours, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I catch myself doing that, and I'm like, oh, I don't want this guy to get away with it. It's weird how my brain does that, I think, yeah. That's two I, different things.
0: My, my um, I man, when it comes to kids and, and crimes against children, I don't know what happens. It's not that my brain twists in half like you were describing, but I pretty much automatically I, I want to shut everything down and just, you know, s- uh, send it to a judge. I, I don't want to have anything to do with like stuff related to, to children. And that's partly just like, you know, being a, a parent myself it's terrifying in so many different ways to think about somebody getting away with this and these are, like they were saying in these videos i think they're like 2019 2020 2021 20, so it's kind of during the pandemic he was doing this stuff that makes it worse for me you know taking advantage of like whoever he was taking advantage of here and just overall the fact that he was able to get away with more than a more than one instance it's terrible because that means, you know, you've got kids that are terrified who aren't talking to the adults in their lives. Um, and this guy really does become a predator at that point. And, you know, his ability to intimidate them and all the things that happen there just infuriate me. I, I, I hope that he gets all the help that he needs and spends all the time that he needs, uh, behind bars, because I'm pretty sure the way this went down, this is a life in prison situation.
1: Well, it should be. And, uh, while it'd be great if he got help, uh, sometimes you have to wonder if that's possible, really, uh, or if it's probable, I guess. Um, sometimes people are just, you know, really far gone. And I, I have a feeling he's going to probably plead out And based on just sort of the way he's acted so far in the case.
0: Yeah, that probably is where this is headed. I... Ugh. I hope he doesn't put these poor kids through a trial. And I don't have any of his attorney information, so I can't even comment in that direction. I have one more crazy thing. This is uh, one of those cases that like sort of sprawls out of. I think the Daily Beast had it, and maybe there were several news articles about this guy. I'm bringing him up today, like for a number of reasons. You you want you want to talk about one more? Sure. Okay. This is, um, Daily Beast had this on July 12th from a guy named Justin uh, Rorlich. Uh, It's a good article. It's in their crime and justice section. And the the headline of the article is, Ex-Spy Accused of Putting CIA Hopeful Through Sordid Secret Sex Training. And he filed this under the column, The Point of No Return. And it just says, Former clandestine officer Sean Wiggins allegedly assaulted the woman repeatedly, and what he assisted was a covert program to train her to use her body as a weapon. A former CIA officer allegedly duped an aspiring covert operative into believing she was part of a quasi-official recruitment program for budding spies, then coerced her into repeatedly having sex with them so she could learn how to use her body, quote, as a weapon. The woman claimed she was told it it would replicate the purported off-limits work every CIA officer was inevitably called on to do, and that the techniques she picked up would become a part of her technical skill set. But the fabricated and extended training exercise did nothing to help the young cybersecurity specialist realize her dream of joining the agency and instead groomed her for ongoing sexual abuse, ultimately landing her in a psychiatric facility. This is all from a lawsuit that was obtained by the Daily Beast, and there's a 58-page complaint laying out a lot of crazy shenanigans this guy was up to. The accusations are against Sean Wiggins, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sodorex, an upstate New York data analytics consulting firm and provider of active shooter training. His corporate bio says he served as a clandestine service officer for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, identifying and engaging key foreign national stakeholders critical to U.S. interests. He also worked for the Department of Defense Inspector General as an external affairs officer. The company says its leadership included several other ex feds. There's a former FBI special agent in charge, a former Department of Justice staff attorney a former Navy SEAL who had been working for the CIA. The CIA did not respond to the Daily Beast request for verifications of Wiggins' past employment, but he is regularly cited in local media as having worked for the agency. He has twice run for local office as a Democrat and as a conservative. The woman is identified here as Jane Doe. She's identified in the complaint only as Jane Doe. Wiggins told the woman that when she wasn't using sex to get information out of enemy targets, she could use it to develop stronger connections between herself and other operatives. Specifically, according to the filing, Wiggins said that the bond between case officers on missions together was such that it wasn't unusual to form sexual relationships with colleagues. And it goes on and on and on. I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but it is terrible. Did you uh, you read some of the articles on this thing?
1: I did. I'm glad they didn't name her. And I certainly don't want to victim shame. But um, it, how desperate do you have to be to buy that steaming pile?
0: Yeah. So they detail it here. You know, this is Wiggins. He sets her up. Um, she thought that she was looking at her dream career. According to Daily Beast and the, the complaint itself, Wiggins gained Doe's trust, turned it against her and assaulted her again and again. She brought the complaint against Wiggins and Sodorex under New York State's Adult Survivors Act, which provides sexual assault victims a one-year look-back window, which would end in late November, during which cases that otherwise would have expired under the statute of limitations can be reopened. As of May, there have been about 130 lawsuits filed under this act. And there's a couple of famous defendants in there, including uh, James Toback, Mike Tyson, and uh, former President Trump. So that's how they, they get this in, in front of people. The the rundown of the statement of facts sort of leads to this story. Uh, basically, the allegations against Wiggins can be traced back to August 2017 when Jane Doe was hired at Sotirex. She reported exclusively to Wiggins, who literally believed her work at Sotirex, along with his connections, would prepare her for a job at the CIA. Because of the nature of the work she was interested in, she understood that the position would require her to trust Wiggins and that she may be exposed to unique situations outside of the standard nine to five office job. She graduated from college in 2009, and as she entered her mid-20s, she decided she wanted to join the CIA. So to bolster her chances, she got a certificate in international cyber conflict. She followed the advice of a professor there who, who had said some practical work experience would look good on her resume. That spring, she spotted a blurb in the local paper about an upcoming ribbon-cutting ceremony at Sodorex, which is going to be a new cybersecurity firm in Saratoga Springs. She was intrigued by Wiggins' CIA background. She read about it on the website there. So she attended the ceremony and introduced herself. Before she even had a chance to reach back out to him, Wiggins had found her on LinkedIn and messaged her to arrange a meeting. The two met three times at a local restaurant, but no job offer seemed to be forthcoming, according to the complaint. After two months, Doe assumed she hadn't passed Wiggins' informal interview process, but as late summer rolled around, Doe ran into Wiggins by chance at a Saratoga Springs coffee shop. She reiterated how interested she was in the CIA career, and this time, Wiggins expressed interest in hiring her. He assured Doe that working for him would be a gateway into her working for the CIA, and he began to control Doe and separate her from others, all under the guise of training. To begin with, he insisted Doe only, acu- uh, only communicate with him via uh, privately via WhatsApp. And then taking quotes out of the complaint, Doe understood that she needed to learn about communications which could, not, which could not be traced as part of a training. So she was not concerned about the unusual communication style. Meanwhile, Wiggins had permitted her to take occasional babysitting jobs to earn money, but then prohibited her from any work that might impinge on these training exercises. Wiggins told Jane Doe he planned to shape her into the ideal recruit and demanded that she be on call 24 hours a day. On one occasion, he said, you, my dear, are an agent in waiting. Toward the end of September, Doe says Wiggins told her about the off-limits training he planned to conduct. She responded enthusiastically, trusting Wiggins that it would simulate actual CIA techniques. The tone of the messages soon started to shift, with Wiggins then beginning to compliment Doe's hair and asking if she'd ever been a model, according to the complaint. Still, there was enough talk about tradecraft to keep Doe interested. In October 2017, Wiggins told Doe that working with her put him back in agency mode and offered her a tour of CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia— the complaint states, noting that Wiggins told Doe he had previously worked with a guy who managed the technology that brought down disgraced FBI agent Robert Hansen, who was caught spying for the Russians. You've crossed the point of no return, Wiggins allegedly messaged Doe, which the complaint says Doe took to mean she was really being trained to join the CIA. Later that month, according to the complaint, Wiggins informed Doe she was ready to go to the next level. This meant becoming his covert traveling companion he dangled trips to London, Paris, and Switzerland and then wrote to her on WhatsApp, I am your handler now. The word handler being a reference to a case officer who is in charge of managing a human asset. He also taught Doe how to leave unobtrusive chalk markings in public places to leave signals for other spies. One denoted a meeting while another denoted an emergency meeting. Doe claims that Wiggins told her. Third mark signified immediate extraction. Is it a request for extraction or to tell someone else they're going to be extracted? Doe messaged Wiggins. Yes, Wiggins replied. Phase two of training began in December, 2017. Doe says that Wiggins told her she was now ready for this part of her training. And he said that I saw an intense side of you. I like that. Wiggins said he'd be stepping up the training to even higher levels, but she still needed some education And he planned to conduct some testing to see how she reacted. That same day, the complaint says that Wiggins messaged Doe saying, I've been amazed how potent, very well-trained women can use their bodies as a weapon very effectively. I bet Doe responded. This decimated our Marines in Russia. Had to develop special training to counteract cost millions. So I don't say this lightly. I'm working on developing you, Wiggins allegedly wrote to Doe, and I think you're going to be a superior officer. I need to get more self-discovery out of you as a colleague. Wiggins spoke of his own CIA recruitment, which he said involved a female CIA officer who used sexual tactics to test Wiggins' loyalty and unwavering dedication to the CIA. Doe says Wiggins told her she was in my hands now and to get ready for a wild, wonderful, and fantastic ride. Soon, according to Doe's lawsuit, Wiggins would assault her for the first time. On January 31st, 2018, Doe accompanied Wiggins on what he described as a big trip to New York City. He gave Doe his credit card to check them into the room. She was surprised to learn there was only one room booked. So Doe assumed there had been a mistake and secured a second room. Upon hearing this, Wiggins became visibly irritated, assailing Doe for having ruined everything. Wiggins then went to his room to, quote, meet with a contact, end quote. He claimed to have been involved with Doe's supposed CIA recruitment. When Doe later met up with Wiggins at the hotel bar, he told her that his CIA connection still had doubts about her commitment to the process. He pointed out a man nearby and indicated he was undercover CIA and told Doe to kiss him on the cheek as a signal to the man that she was committed to being recruited. Doe then went up to Wiggins' room for a conference call with Sodorex's COO, Wiggins's brother. She says she briefly returned to her own room, only to be summoned back by Wiggins to his room, who answered the door in nothing but boxers and a t shirt. He then forced himself on a shocked Doe. Doe did not know how to respond and believed she was being tested. So even though she did not want to have sex with him, she froze. And after Wiggins was done sexually assaulting her, he told her to put her clothes back on and that she, he telling her simply, very good. You can get dressed now. This complaint goes on to talk about, and the article going to talk about she was struggling to make ends meet, and that he finally gives her a check in March of twenty eighteen. Um, she was really running through hard times herself, and he had continued to sexually assault her. And then she got a letter confirming her employment at Coderex, so she could help qualify to help her qualify for a car loan. I uh, confirmed that she was supposed to be making fifty thousand hey, dollars. This this guy is a terrible person. Uh, what did you think about all of this?
1: I think he's a terrible person. Um, I agree. Uh, he, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he's not a former CIA agent. Um,
0: no, my guess is this guy is. Pro- I mean. He's probably tied in some way, and that gives him the ability to do
1: this. I don't know that um, I don't know that Doe would know any different. Right? No, I don't think she would either. And, uh, the confidence on this guy. I'm a little disappointed. Now, I thought maybe it was a lack of evidence, but as you kind of went through it, I mean, it seems like there is some evidence. Uh, so right now she is the allegations against him are in a civil lawsuit, right?
0: Yeah, this is her she's suing under the Adult Survivors Act of New York State, basically suing him for assaulting her.
1: Right. And so I'm not sure I don't know why there isn't some sort of criminal uh investigation happening here. Cause I'm Well there's an update sure. this
0: morning on this case, if you want to Oh know. really. So this is a short update. Same guy, Justin Roller, it's also from Daily Beast. Um And it just says, a former CIA clandestine service officer uh, accused of putting an aspiring operative through a sordid training program centered on servicing him sexually is now nowhere to be found. The upstate New York data analytics firm Sean uh, Sean Wiggins co-founded confirms that he has apparently vanished. So the attorneys representing Jane Doe, they've hired a skip tracer trying to find
1: well, uh, so this guy uh, definitely needs to. Uh, I don't know that be taken down is the best word, because I mean, he didn't kill anybody, but what he did was very manipulative and very um, damaging, right?
2: Yeah.
1: He won't stop. Like, this will be his. It'll be a no. speed bump,
0: yeah.
1: And oh my gosh, he must be so convincing. Like, I, there's so many flags in this story and it's just kind of like, I want to sit there with my like mouth just kind of drop to the floor. Right. <laughs> Cause it's like, wait, what? <laughs> Especially like when, you know, she wasn't being paid and like she, uh, she wanted a job so bad, uh, that she was willing to just believe anything this guy said. He, you know, obviously realized that and made the most out of the situation for his own personal gain. He had absolutely no interest in ever helping her do anything, I'm sure. Cause anytime I see like private security firm all this
0: multiple descriptions, but yeah.
1: Well, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's because of the variance of, you know, what they've talked about. I'm just like, this guy is doing nothing but scamming people. That's what it Red like to me, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's very rare to ever actually come across anybody that's an actual uh, either present or, or former CIA agent. They don't typically advertise that.
0: It doesn't come up at all in conversation, though.
1: And so, like when you see it, you know, like oh, that's probably not true.
0: Well, so this is this last part. It goes straight into bad movie plot, by the way. So that's where we're headed. We're we're now because I feel terrible that this happened to her. I didn't. I'm I'm separating this last part because it really does. It, it skews so far into crazy town with this whole thing of trying to serve Wiggins these papers. So the. The attorneys representing Wiggins' accuser are going through the process right now. And uh, if you, uh, you want to pull this up, the Daily Beast has it. It's got the whole thing kind of laid out there. But here's what, there's a guy named John Bell that represents Wiggins. He told the Daily Beast that uh, he couldn't comment on any pending litigation. He had previously told Sarasota Springs newspaper, the Daily Gazette, that Wiggins denies the allegations against him. And he, he expects that he will be fully exonerated. Sotirex's general counsel was unable to be reached on Tuesday. A call to the company connected uh, to an automated recording system saying that the number was now out of service. An email sent to Sodorex for comment about Wiggins, whose bio has been deleted and is asking about his possible whereabouts when unanswered. Four days past the court-imposed deadline, Doe's lawyers have not been able to serve him. They've asked for an additional 45 days. The lawsuit was filed on July 11th, after which Judge Lisa Headley ordered the documents to be served personally on Wiggins and Soderrex by July 21st. Attorneys Megan Goddard and uh, Syobin Klassen, they engaged the process server to take care of the task, uh, according to a motion submitted in court by Klassen. On the morning of July 19th, the process server performed a skip trace on Wiggins to pull up his last known address. Although he worked in New York he, and was thought to have uh, resided there, the results came back showing an address in Inglewood, Colorado. When the process server showed up the next day, Wiggins was not there. The resident of the home stated that he moved into the address approximately one month ago and does not know anyone related to the situation. Uh, That's in an email from the process server to Doe's lawyers that's in this. That afternoon, Doe's lawyers emailed Bell to ask if he would be willing to accept the service, but they received an out-of-office auto-reply informing them that Bell would be away until the end of July without access to email or phones, according to the motion. The next day, the process server went to Soterex's listed address on the fourth floor of an office building that's connected to New York According to an email string included in all these court filings by Doe's lawyers, there they found that a different business occupied the space and no one on the premises had ever heard of Wiggins. The company, the suite number, the floor, as described, does not exist. We cannot serve something that does not exist, said the process server. She tried a second address for Sodarex, in which she described as a huge six story building that is Saratoga Springs. As per the lobby attendant, the subject was not located there. They went to the suite, and they spoke to a woman who is employed by a local accounting firm that has occupied the suite for the last three years. So at a crossroads, Godwin-Classen had no choice but to serve Soder-X via the Secretary of State's office. On July 21st, the two attorneys had the process server contact the U.S. Postal Service to formally request the most recent address for defendant Wiggins, Upon her request, she was informed that this process takes significant time. Doe's lawyers are now asking the court for an additional 45 days to serve Wiggins, hoping they'll be able to locate the absent defendant so the lawsuit can proceed. Wiggins' formal response to Doe's suit is due by August the 18th. All of this is bad movie plot.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: If he was actually, if he's actually a clandestine services officer and has the experience that he, and they will never find him.
1: Well, but come on, if he was actually a clandestine CIA former operative, he wouldn't have done this.
0: I'm just saying. I'm. I understand we're at a crossroads, but those in my mind. I feel mind are like parallel. the
1: government could find him. You there are a couple of ways
0: they could find him. Yeah, I just it's, think this whole thing is bonkers.
1: It is bonkers. And, um, you know, uh, so I was curious, I was confused because I, you don't really ask an attorney, uh, of record to accept service, right?
0: Well, I couldn't figure out what they meant by that. That's why, that's another reason I said bad movie plot, because if they haven't served him, how is he representing him?
1: He was representing him on something, right? Yeah. Um, and so to me, an attorney of record, uh, and it sounded like it had something to do with this matter, right? I, I don't know what. But uh I would have just served them because he's made a statement. I, I don't know. I'm sure they explored that avenue. I was just really surprised because typically uh once you have representation that has made an appearance and hasn't, you know, gotten uh removed through a proper judicial channel like they still have to accept the service of stuff right yeah so I don't know um it seemed like uh they got an out of the I mean I I haven't if if the guy if there is something criminal um and he was representing him on that a lot of times you know criminal defense attorneys don't really do civil litigation and vice versa or whatever but uh, I don't know that this seems like really strange. Uh, it's going to end up being that like this guy doesn't even exist. <laughs> He's a completely different person.
0: I think it, I think it will be something like that. Actually. I, I, you I was, um, I noticed that uh, I, and I thought about this like a little too late. I, I think some, somebody needs to check and make sure John Bell is not the same guy. Because that's weird for the attorney to also just
1: that. It is weird. Um, I, I can't really figure out what's going on there. And this, you know, obviously the lawsuit has been filed with the court, uh, but the service on the other party hasn't occurred yet. And so really they can't get anywhere with it until that happens. I'm sure that the victim is filling all kinds of stuff. Oh, and interesting. Is- I
0: did find John Bell. He's real. So this, check this out. John Bell began his career at one of the largest litigation firms in New York. Despite gaining vast experience in multi-million dollar claims, Mr. Bell was dissatisfied with not being able to select his own clients and therefore sometimes had personal conflicts in handling cases we he believed to be on the wrong side. Thereafter, he started his own law firm, which allowed him to select his own cases. John Bell became interested in federal employee litigation as he discovered the need for federal employees to have strong, knowledgeable representation. John Bell loves David and Goliath-type scenarios and always roots for the underdog. Most of his cases involve an employee fighting their management and taking on an entire federal agency.
1: And we're sure that's the same guy? Yeah, Um, so he probably dropped him as a client.
0: Yeah, Yeah, or was involved in a previous litigation. Uh, Not really this one.
1: Right, it just seems weird that he would have commented on it, but whatever. I mean it is what it is. Um, I hope this, if, if they don't get this guy served, okay. I hope it's at least enough to like make him stop.
0: Yeah, I do too. I can't even,
1: I I can't even now, you know, people that are scared run, right? Yeah. Uh, people that are not, you know, people that are, uh, dignified and, you know, maintain their position of, what they did that have integrity of any sort, you know, they don't run. It it bothers me because uh he's got to be just very convincing, right? He clearly preys on uh naivety, right? Yeah. Uh, whichever, you know, in this particular case, it was a woman who, uh, wanted a job and she had this chance encounter with this dude and like, it didn't go anywhere. And then she had another chance encounter with him. And then like all this terrible stuff happened to her and he was giving her all kinds of garbage information and she was lapping it up with a spoon cause she really wanted to you know, this career goal to happen for her. And so he's going to take that and adjust it to any situation he's in. But the victims are always going to be the same kind of people. And they're, they're essentially prey. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, I hate people like that. Um, you know, he's allegedly,
0: he's just... <laughs> this isn't a lawsuit. We're basically reading from a lawsuit in the article surrounding the Yeah, lawsuit. Sure.
1: Yeah. Okay, so if he did, you know, if all the allegations were to be true, regardless if it's him or anybody else, you know, he he's preying on on the I don't want to say weaker, but he's preying on, you know, the on manipulating a situation, and I hate it when people do things like that. Yeah, I especially would agree when either. people suffer, right? When you've yeah. got this, you know. According to the lawsuit, this woman with really good intentions trying to get herself ahead. And, you know, this guy's just slapping it up. And, you know, he's taking advantage of it and he'll do it again. And, like, so I, I, I do understand that some people uh, actually, you know, they do that kind of thing. And that's, they must get something out of it, right? I feel like it would be an incredible... Uh, for one thing, I couldn't keep up with all the lies, and then like trying to juggle, and it would be just like an incredible waste of time, right? But some people, that's their actual prerogative, which I guess would have to be because he was living this for months, right?
0: Oh yeah, I, I, mm, I don't like folks like this, and I don't, I don't understand folks like.
1: Did you see the picture of him? Yeah. Did you think that he looked like anybody?
0: What do you mean? Like someone famous?
1: Uh huh. Mm,
0: Judge Mathis,
1: maybe. Oh, a little bit. Oh.
0: <laughs> he. Hmm. I don't know. He's got. He's got a pretty generic look. Why? I look at videos of him too.
1: Did he look like Wayne Brady?
0: Some of his pictures, he has a little bit of a look like Wayne Brady. yeah
1: when I looked at it at first, um, I don't know exactly what – what was it on, like the New York Post or something?
0: Uh, Daily Beast had the main Daily picture. I didn't, I didn't see any New York Post stuff. Well,
1: so I've had some issues with my computer, and so I've, I'm kind of navigating roughly here. But um, when I was – I can't get back to it right this second. But in my mind, when I looked at it, I didn't realize that they were talking about um, – the guy that was the subject of the article, right? Uh, Sean yeah. Wiggins. I didn't realize that. And I thought, like, what is Wayne Brady doing on this page, right? <laughs> and then, so I look, because I, you know, I I always, I really like Wayne Brady and whose line is it anyways. Yeah. And when I looked, I was like, oh, wait, that's not him. That's this dude, right? <laughs> I was very surprised. Um, but, yeah, to me, he looked a little like him, but I can't really get back to it. To, to double check, but my first impression was what is Wayne Brady doing on this screen?
0: Yeah. You know, he's all over the place. Like I can't make sense of like what he's doing, but I would agree with the, the Wayne Brady look. I mean, he, he's got kind of that look going. I went back and looked through videos of him talking where he was running for different um, uh, stuff up in that area, like running for office and stuff. He was definitely, he's an odd one. Um, overall, I found it shocking that I had LinkedIn people in common with him and I was like what uh it was so strange to me that that, that was a thing um you know it's been a really long time since he like when I scrolled through his resume he basically has this period where he claimed to be a US government representative from 1988 to 1997
1: what is that even oh a representative like and Yeah, like Congress? his
0: res- no, no 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 like his, his like his okay, so basically it pops up and uh, I wish I could find it again because it kind of disappeared on me. But it has his um his education is out of like Southern University and then it said he got as that he was a master's candidate at Harvard, maybe. And then he had all these like volunteering things that he did and a bunch of different stuff. But if you clicked on his like resume, for experience, it basically said he was an appropriations committee clerk from 1987 to 1988, and then a representative of the U.S. government worldwide from 1988 to 1997, and then a managing principal of Washington Consulting Alliance from 1997 to 2000. 2000 to 2003, he was a senior consultant with Issue Dynamics out of D.C., Um, and then it said that he was deputy director of public – Affairs for the Office of the Inspector General for a year, 2003 to 2004, and then he pops back up as the Vice President of Marketing for Cosmetic Dentistry Group out of Dayton, Ohio for the next two years, and then he moves over to Shell Corporation for like, I don't know, eight years or something. I could not get a a good read on what this guy was doing in the world, and that's why I was bringing it up at the end, because I was like, this guy is interesting as hell
1: he's something
0: anyways well we'll see what happens with that one But thank you so much for joining us today we'll see you next time
1: Now, in some of the pictures, he doesn't really look like Wayne Brady. But one of them, it was, it was a social media post that somebody had like screenshotted, I guess.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. And I think he had like a blue shirt on. And I yeah, that's his old
0: LinkedIn profile. It's not there anymore, but I I saw that too.
1: Well, I looked and I was like, "Why is Wayne Brady doing here?" Because I was like, "What is happening?" And then I realized it was that guy because the initial picture was like it's like a. Almost like a comic. Uh, I didn't know. Yeah, it had some kind of
0: graphic run over. And so um, I
1: didn't see his face initially.
0: Somewhere in here, I thought he looked a little like Courtney B. Vance uh, when he was talking about like running for office or whatever. I don't. I I, I do not get a good read on him. Like I don't get a positive read on him. Uh, and usually, I don't know. I, I'm not gonna. Get into the whole like, is he or is he not? I, you know, I think people have found out that they can't verify your employment with the CIA except if you've done certain like publicly accountable positions with them. And I think people take advantage of that from time to time. And this could be that type of situation because that would have been sort of post Cold War nonsense going on with him.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so you kind of have to. You know, I was gonna say, unless you're in this very particular position where, um, like the like the plaintiff in the case you're talking about against him, right, Uh, where she was just really trying to get somewhere, and he maneuvered his way in there, it really doesn't come up very often. Uh, You know, it, it wouldn't even matter if somebody lied to you and said that they were, you know, a CIA agent, right? Right. Um, it, unless you were like, yeah, you can't even like keep your shoes tied. to so <laughs> want me to believe you're a CIA agent. All right, buddy. And, you know, I don't argue with people like that. I'm just like, okay, sure, whatever. But like, so it would be like this really strange, like set of circumstances where it would even matter. But I think you're right. I, You know, it is. I mean, who's going to verify that, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Like, well, give me the name of your supervisor. Well, I can't, you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's a, what do they call it? It's classified.
0: Right, exactly. You can't. <laughs> I mean, there is a way to verify certain positions through an HR number, but it doesn't tell you what they did or who they were. It would just tell you that they were an employee of the US government. And like, I don't see that being something, I don't know. Like this guy just, he strikes me wrong. And I wanted, uh, like, this is not my story, but I wanted to keep publicizing the story because people like this that pop up, just like you said earlier, they don't stop. So the more you can tell their story and the share well, it.
1: And life. I was going to say they need to be stopped um, because, uh, you know, th- these are some of the worst. And we don't really cover these types of crimes, especially not naming the victim or anything. But these, I mean, this kind of stuff destroys people's lives. And it's like for absolutely nothing, right?
0: Yeah.
2: cloud over my windowsill. Some days I swear the weatherman is out for me. I've been locked inside thinking about sunlight. Woke up with a thought, maybe it's all for now. Maybe it's all for now.